Hello and welcome to Fun Problems, the problems of fun. I'm Peter C. Hayward. I'm AJ Brandon. And this is a brand new podcast all about board game design. Uh, I am a full-time board game designer. I've been doing this for five years now, I guess. Yeah, about five years now. And AJ is an aspiring board game designer, and so we have paired up to start a podcast. Absolutely. So, AJ, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and then I will jump in and tell us a little about you as well, and then there'll be two people talking about you, and that'll be the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I am a novice designer. I've been uh, messing around with game design for pretty much my whole life. I've been consuming basically every possible type of media on game design I could find during that whole time. And uh, I also work full-time at Board Game Bliss. I've been working there for four years. Uh, technically currently laid off because of COVID, but it just gives me more time to do this. What is Board Game Bliss? Glad you asked. <laughs> board Game Bliss is North America's premier online board game retailer, which also has a physical space for coming to play and purchase. I've been a manager of that, like I said, for four years. Giving me a different kind of insight, I think, than a lot of newer designers have in terms of not just the game itself, but the game as a product. And that is, uh, as we'll probably talk about at length on this podcast, that is so important. You can't just sit down and design a good game. This is a good game. I like it, my mum likes it, therefore it's good. If you really want to get published, if you really want to get your stuff out there, you've got to be thinking about product. And Peter, you said that you are a full-time game designer. AJ, we've known each other for years. How do you not know this? <laughs> we, we met through me being a game designer. This doesn't make any sense. Uh, yes, so I am the creative head of Jellybean Games, which is a small board game company who makes small board games. I think we're coming up to our 20th game now. Our biggest hits have been Village Pillars, Dracula's Feast, Scuttle in the Treasure Hunter series, and we, at the time of recording, I'm about to wrap a Kickstarter on French Toast, which is a delightful game that I like very much. I like that game too. Oh, hooray! You should back it on Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> I got into board game design like the week after I got into board games, because that's how I operate, and then during a particularly horrible breakup, I used board game design as an escape and just spent all my time designing it. And it very nicely distracted me from my deteriorating relationship. And then I started a company, Jellybean Games, and our first game did pretty well on Kickstarter. And since then, I've been running this company and we have employees and we've published a bunch of games and we've published other people's games. And it's been a, a great time. And then you, AJ, approached me about starting this podcast. Why? Why did you want to do a podcast? Because I'm just so fascinated by you. Not, not actually putting <laughs> your horn here. I actually am. Surely you got enough of that from just sitting outside my bedroom window and watching you sleep. <laughs> Why did you want to do a podcast specifically? You can never have enough. <laughs> so part of it is because you have a lot more practical experience with this type of thing than I do. And I've read a lot of the theory behind it. But I really enjoy hearing the practical experience that you've had testing, what, thousands of prototypes a year? Something like that? Yeah. So one of the things that I am pretty experienced at at this point, experience is a good word, is playing prototypes and giving feedbacks. Before, obviously, the world went into lockdown, I would go to pretty much every prototyping con I could, which was six to ten a year. And I would go to every convention and just want to play prototypes from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep. So I would guess in an average pre-2020 year, I would play somewhere around a thousand prototypes and give notes on them. And as well as that, you know, in, when I was living in Toronto, I had the weekly game group that we'd go and we'd play prototypes. So playing prototypes is something I do a lot and I really, really enjoy it. If you ever meet me and I'm not, you know, behind a booth, I will happily play a prototype. One of the things that I do best is playing prototypes, which is a skill, and then giving hopefully useful feedback on them. Right, and that's something that I've been really impressed by, um, being able to play games with you as well and also give feedback. One thing that I've noticed a lot of is uh, we'll both play a prototype, and then I'll say something like, 
well, this and this and this are problems because of this. They'll say, oh, you're right, that is a problem. And then you'll come along and say, well, AJ's right in that that's a problem, but here's the root underlying cause of why it's an issue in this particular design. And I think being able to just very quickly get to the core of what the issue is, is very impressive and something that you seem to do very consistently. Oh, thank you very much. It is, it is something that I think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not terrible at. <laughs> <laughs> so why do you want to do the podcast, Peter? So I wanted, uh, when, you, when you approached me about this, I wanted to do it for two reasons. One is that I just have all this board game knowledge stored in my head just from doing this full time for four and a half years now. And it doesn't do anyone much good stored in my head. So I thought maybe by doing a podcast and talking it all through with you, we would be able to get some of this out. And and I'm not saying everything I say is right, but you know I, I won't know it's wrong until I say it. And someone's like, well, Peter, here's why that's wrong. So just getting all this stuff from my head into the internet would be really lovely. And the second thing is I wanted to hang out with you. I thought this was a really great excuse to hang out with my friend AJ on a regular basis, especially now that I don't live in Toronto anymore. And, you know, the world's shut down, so I never get to see you. Wow, what a sap. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I 100% agree. <laughs> so last thing before we get into the meat of this week's topic, what is this podcast going to be? What's the goal for it? What, 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 are, you, what are you imagining here? So what I am sort of seeing this as is another Game Design podcast, because of course there are other ones, but looking at a really, really wide range of different topics that I think have been underserved or touched on a little bit of, but not quite to the extent that we want to dive into them. And uh, with a different perspective that obviously we have that other people don't have. Right. I'm particularly interested in doing this with you because of your unique perspective as a retailer. Like you are a game designer who works in retail. And so you have a very, very good idea of how product works and what makes a good product. And I've always enjoyed playing your prototypes because even when the game isn't there, the product vision is there. You'll give me the pitch. And I'll be like, holy crap. Even if I didn't like you, I'd want to sit down and play this game. So I think that your perspective from that point of view is going to be really valuable. Well, thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to digging into all those many years of uh, experience in the various areas too, because as you said, you know, Jellybean Games is your company. You've got a lot more than just game design experience. You've got experience for the whole process start to finish, which a lot of people don't have. And uh, I should warn listeners right now, probably 70 to 80% of this podcast is just going to be me and AJ complimenting each other because we like <laughs> each other that much and you have to live with it. <laughs> so without further ado, today we're talking about coming up with ideas, which seems like a great place to start for a new podcast on game design. Love it. I'm going to start by asking you a question, AJ. You've, you've come up with many game designs. Where do your ideas come from? My game design ideas actually come from absolutely all over the place. I find that I can't just turn my brain off for new ideas for games, ever. You know, there was one time that I looked at the back of a box and I saw a cardboard standee that was taller than the box. Immediately I thought, Shadow of the Colossus, the board game. Like, that's a thing that I could do. Just have a, a huge creature and you're climbing around on it. That just looked so cool. That gave me an idea, you know? So it, it can be really anything that, that jumps out to me. So you take real life inspiration. So you, you don't sit down with a pen and paper and think, I'm going to come up with a board game idea. You'll be walking down the street and you'll see a tree and a cat and be like, cat tree, the game. Exactly. Though sometimes it's also a matter of uh, uh, challenging myself. So I'll give you, for instance, I was thinking about Betrayal at House on the Hill a lot and how there aren't many other horror games. And the ones that are, are horror in theme only, but not in terms of experience from the player. And I thought to myself, you know, board games are probably the worst possible medium for horror because you have to, by definition, tell everybody how everything works, which is the antithesis of horror. Horror comes from fear of not knowing, right? Right. And so I started thinking, can it be done, basically? And if I did, 
what would that look like? How do we get something out of the system? Right. So r rather than, hey, guys, here's the exact parameters. Now go be scared, <laughs> trying to introduce the unknown as the game goes along. Exactly. And this is what I mean when I say when you pitch one of your games, I'm like, oh, that is interesting every dang time. <laughs> I really appreciate that because... Uh, a lot of them are very experimental and often don't work, but that's part of the fun. <laughs> it's a fun problem. I was actually talking to someone today about the fact that there's two types of fear. There's fear of failure. There's not two types of fear. There's two types of ambition fear specifically. Fear of failure, which means you never do anything because you could fail. And there's fear of not succeeding, which means you will do as much as you can because if you never try anything, you definitely won't succeed. It's an easy trap to fall into fear of failing where you just never try anything. And instead, you're better off throwing as much spaghetti as the wall as you can and trying to get some to stick. That's very interesting. Again, we're probably just going to keep going back and forth complimenting. But <laughs> if nothing else, this podcast will be great for our egos. Yeah. yeah, we will be the whole audience being like, hey, that was interesting. Well, well done, us. Good job. So speaking of inspiration from non-game related sources, what apart from games themselves have inspired your designs? That's a good question. So I'm a little bit like you in that I can get inspired from anywhere. And as well as making games, I do a whole host of other creative projects. And so I tend to find those inspire this and this inspires that and can go a little bit around a circle. I'm what you'd probably call a mechanics first designer. So most of my inspirations do come from mechanics, but those mechanics don't necessarily have to be inspired by games, if that makes sense. So I'll give you the weirdest example. I was getting a dental cleaning. <laughs> a friend of mine is a dental hygienist and she was a student at the time. So I went and got a free dental cleaning because she needed practice. And as it was happening, her teacher came up and said, okay, you want to do it nice and smooth, one quick, simple motion. The most generic thing you can imagine someone saying. And I remember hearing that and thinking, wow, what a generic statement. I bet that applies to every craft. Like that's not unique to dental hygiene. As a writer, you want to get everything done nice and smooth, one simple motion. In fact, I bet you could even build a game out of that. And I went home and that night made a game which later became Jabberwocky, which is a jelly bean game, where the core mechanism was that on your turn you do one smooth, simple motion, but that motion determines a few things. So like where you pick it up from, where you place it, and what you pick up. Each one of those things is a decision, but the actual move is one smooth, simple motion. So yeah, like you, I, I kind of draw inspiration from anywhere. That's, that's the weirdest one I can think of. <laughs> and it's interesting because... That definitely touches on a design concept of elegance in terms of coupling multiple systems together, right? But that's not necessarily something that your brain would have articulated if it didn't hear it in that context. Right, absolutely, yeah. The mistake that I see a lot of first-time designers making is putting everything into the game. And I say this like I wasn't guilty of it. Of course I was. <laughs> Since the start of this year, I've gotten really into setting Sudokus, which is a very strange hobby to have. It's, I guess it's related to game design in a sense because they're puzzles and puzzles are very close to games. And so I'm on a Sudoku setting Discord channel and you see new setters come in and they want to put every single variant that they can into a single Sudoku. And you're like, no, just keep it as simple as possible. And the same is absolutely true of game design, especially the kind of stuff I design, which is for families and kids. Never put two mechanisms in where one will do. I'd say one of the most common notes I give to new designers is, okay, could you take this half of the game out? Could you take all of this out and just focus on this one thing and make this one thing really super interesting and fun? I completely agree. I, I cannot count the number of times that I've played a game where I, I think to myself, you've got this really amazing, unique hook that is, is a really fascinating mechanic or, or whatever it is, but it's very unfocused. They've got a million other things going on in there and it doesn't have enough room for that one cool hook to breathe and really explore the design space 
that's the best part of your game. Right. I was not going to give any examples because I didn't want to, you know, bully anyone who wasn't here. But then I remembered I played one of your games, so I can bully you. <laughs> oh boy, which one? So your Shadows of the Colossal idea is mm. great. And and the pitch is basically there's a big giant monster that one person plays and everyone else's heroes trying to attack that monster. And it's just, it's a really fun pitch and it looks good on the table and it's got a whole lot going for it. The first time I played, this was years ago, so I don't feel quite so bad. I'm not saying like, yesterday I played this game, AJ, and it was bad. But when I played this years and years ago, probably one of the first times I met you, I remember the rules explanation was half an hour, 40 minutes. It just went on and on and on and on because you had every character had their own set of unique mechanics and how they related to every part of the monster had a set of unique mechanics. And the monster had these seven different mechanics. And I was like, I just want to play the bit where I'm a big monster attacking a bunch of people and the other players were the same way. And it was just impossible to get into the cool idea because it was surrounded by all this cruft. And again, I'm, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here and being like, hey, AJ, let me attack your game in front of everyone. But I think it's just a really good example of you had a really cool central hook you had a really good premise, and then you just overloaded it with as many mechanics as you could. And it's actually a great example of how my perspective uh, negatively informed my design. Because I was looking at this not from the perspective of how is it going to be right out of the gate. I was looking at it as the finished product. I was designing that game specifically for leader games who only do asymmetric games like Bast. And so when I was designing it, I was designing four different entirely unique game systems one for each of the heroes, and then one for the Colossus, which is the board itself. But then after you played that with me specifically, I realized why I was having so many problems, and I learned that I needed to look at each of the games individually, test them in a more simple version, and then bring them all together, which is still not done, but it's getting better. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned Lita. Uh, firstly, I didn't know that was a pitch specifically for Lita. That's news to me uh, right now. This is a hot scoop, everyone. You heard it here first. <laughs> but specifically, I think it's interesting because if you ever go back and read the vast design diaries, they're really interesting because when Patrick Lita was testing it, he was really focused on balance. He really wanted to make it as balanced as he could. So he kept on adding stuff and tweaking it, adding stuff and tweaking it to the point where players who had now played it 50 times were like, we can't keep these rules in our head, which is a huge problem, obviously. And so he found that by stripping it back and just, he threw balance out. He was like, I'm not going to care about balance at all. I'm going to focus on simplifying it. And the more he focused on simplifying it, the more balanced it got. It was the weirdest thing. And partially because when it was simplified, he could see what the balance looked like. You know, when it was when it was so embedded in mechanics after mechanics, he couldn't see what any change would make. But the more he simplified it, the more he was like, well, obviously this player can't have 15 turns to this player's one. That doesn't make any sense. So I think if, if you are trying to balance your game, stop trying to balance your game, try to simplify it, and that will often lead to balance. That's very interesting. And it does actually fall into a classic new designer trap, which is my game has to be perfectly balanced, right? That's the type of thing where newer designers just obsess over this. And that is the last thing you should worry about, if ever. <laughs> There's a quote, which I might have to beep out, from one of the designers of Cosmic Encounter. You might have heard this. Balance is for <laughs> That's his overriding philosophy as a designer. And if you've played Cosmic Encounters, you'll see they, they don't try to balance it. But that works more in that context because the game is self-balancing in that it's, it's aggressively a gang up on the leader game. So if one player is getting away, cool, everyone will gang up on them. And it's not like, you know, we didn't playtest this at all. They did playtest it. I think this desire to balance stuff is because, I'm, I'm going to misquote Science of the Lambs, we covet what we see or we covet what we see every day or we covet what's in front of us. I think that most game designers come to game design because they play games. 
and they play games and they have a good time and they're like i want to create this experience for others and so i think they tend to focus on what ruins a game for them and so a lot of people when playing a game they will hate an imbalanced game they'll get really annoyed at it so they're like okay i'm gonna make a game design and i'm gonna make sure to balance it and that's why i think we see a disproportionate number of new designers caring way too much about balance i never thought of it that way but that makes a lot of sense like they obsess over the things that they don't like and make sure that, that doesn't work its way into their designs right a lot of the times i see people i don't know why but a lot of designers are coming from the magic the gathering background i find and <laughs> i'm not gonna say the majority but a, a really high number oh yeah and as soon as you you play one of their designs you can immediately tell like oh yeah this and this and this are all <laughs> things from magic the gathering but they'll be so proud that their game is more balanced than Magic the Gathering and not realize that Magic <laughs> is very intentionally unbalanced. Yeah. <laughs> we, we could probably do a whole episode on that. Yeah, I, I never got into MTG, but I did play an old collectible card game called Soulforge. I loved Soulforge. And it would, as a player, it would drive me absolutely bonkers when they'd release a new set. And one card was just better than the others. And Soulforge, because it was a smaller team, they really had more of an issue with it than most games, where if you're playing draft mode, for example, and you got a certain card, you just won. You draft a certain card into your deck, cool. You, you win the entire next four matches without even having to think. So that's obviously too far. But I, I can tell you that, like, as a player, it definitely got me along those lines of, like, well, when I make a game, it'll be so balance that no one will ever care about any card <laughs> exactly the, the point right if, if you have it where every single card is identically as good it's like okay you open a booster pack and you're like well this is fine this is also fine you could pick the cards at random and it removes the excitement yeah i think of it as bumps i think of it as like uh, grit i'm very good as, as a developer i'm very good at smoothing off grit and sometimes i can definitely acknowledge i take that too far where i'm like and now it's perfectly smooth with no feel bad moments at all and also no fun at all i smoothed it all out of the game you're welcome <laughs> so another question i have for you is if somebody's not like us where their brain's just constantly churning out ideas but they actually hit like the equivalent of writer's block for game design ideas do you have any advice for some way to get past that that's interesting so i've never seen like i said i work in various other creative fields i'm also a writer and a screenwriter and i make sudokus in all of these fields, I've never seen someone say, I just don't have any ideas. Like, that that's very rarely the issue. No one's like, I want to sit down and design a game, but I just don't have any ideas. Generally, the opposite problem is true, that you have a list of ideas so long that you'll never get to any of them. But that's not to say it never happens. I particularly notice with, basically, once people's standards start to raise. So, actually, there's a designer called Tim Blank, and he has had this problem, so I, I've immediately lied. Tim Blank, very, very lovely guy, very nice designer. He did the WizKids game Bumuntu, which is a really nice little abstract. And I was talking to him at Metatopia the year after that came out. I was like, what are you working on next? He's like, I have no ideas. <laughs> and so th this, this speaks to what you're saying about writer's block. But I think realistically, the issue is not that he has no ideas. It's that he's now raised his standards for what games are worth his time. And so he probably has 500 ideas, all of which fall below this bar. So, I mean, one thing you could do is just lower the bar and be like, just work on something so that at least you are creating. And when you create, you'll come up with different ideas. Or, hey, maybe the one that you thought wasn't good enough will turn out to be amazing. But I'll, I'll tell you one thing I've heard advised for new designers particularly. Making a game is hard. Making a full system that works and doesn't break and has some semblance of balance and is interesting and fun for everyone is really difficult. So I think it was on a game design podcast I heard the suggestion, take your favorite game and design an expansion. Just sit down and... You know, my favorite game is Feast for Odin. So I would sit down and design 
a new board for Feast for Odin or a bunch of little occupation cards or something like that. Just something that you can plug into an existing system. It's a little bit like if you're a writer, don't necessarily start by like, I'm going to write a novel. Instead, write some fan fiction. Like, at that point, you don't have to worry about character creation, world building, all that kind of stuff. You can focus on plot and dialogue, which are very hard in and of themselves. Making expansions like that. You're not coming up with an entire base system. You're creating some content. So one thing I, I would suggest if you're really sitting there being like, I want to design games. I got no ideas. Take a game, design an expansion. And hey, maybe it'll get picked up. That's how at least one of the Scythe expansions occurred. That's how my little Scythe came about. If you design expansion... It probably won't be good, not because of an expansion, just because most of what new designers create isn't good. Sorry that I had to break it to you like this. It's just a fact. But hey, you know, it'll get you moving. It'll get you understanding stuff. And at the end of it, you might have something you can pitch as, as an official expansion. Funny enough, that's how the first expansion for Twilight Imperium 3 came about. There was a fan who uh, uh, played the game a lot, so that there were some very fundamental problems with the third edition and sent them a uh, proposal for the expansion immediately got hired and they made it basically as is oh wow <laughs> and um <laughs> that's, that's a great example and i think that uh your advice is terrific that's how i got started my gateway game after like risk and monopoly and all that was a uh, descent which is a very beautiful hot mess if i do say so <laughs> i mean the utmost respect wait you mean to... it's not perfectly balanced then never play it again that's the only point of games it has a lot of uh problems with it but the things that are good about it are so good and i've never seen a lot of the things that it does well replicated in any other game since and i think that if you look at one of your favorite games and you try and think what are the things i like about it and why do i like them and what are the things i don't like and why do i not like those you can probably figure out an expansion or some extra content or a revision of the rules as is that can improve the game and improve your understanding of why the game works and why it doesn't. And better yet, if your expansion idea is a flop, you've just learned a lot more about right. what actually goes into it. Yeah, it's like what I was saying earlier. Rather than being afraid of failing, pick something that maybe is a little low stakes, like a fan expansion. You know, how can you go wrong with that? Don't be afraid to fail. Be afraid of not succeeding by doing nothing. So yeah, as long as you're making something, you know, you're creating. Now, when you're first starting with a, a new idea, do you find it useful to like bounce ideas off of other people to sort of help form it in your in your mind? It's interesting. So I'm, I'm very recently divorced. Woe is me. Uh, so I can tell you while I was married, generally the first time I had a version of a game. So like that game that I came up with the dentist, I came home and played it with my husband pretty much straight away. I was like, look, we're trying this. Do, do, do. And we played it. And I was like, OK, cool. There is something here. On many occasions, like I made a roll and write and played it and I was just like, yep, there is nothing here. So I recommend getting it to the table as quickly as possible. To bring up Colossus again, uh, not, to, not to rub salt to the wound, one of the things that you maybe would do now if you're starting again is rather than try to make four separate games, do what we call an MVP, a minimum viable prototype. So just testing the core mechanism and nothing else, just making it as simple as you can just to get it on the table. Sometimes I'll bring it to the table being like, look, I only have this one card. Just pretend it's five cards or, look, I don't really know how it ends, but just try to do this thing. One of the games that Jellybean published, Show and Tile, I was actually in one of these early playtests for. Isaac Shalev, who's one of the two designers, brought it to, uh, I think it was Dexcon or Dreamation, one of the double exposure conventions in Jersey, and was like, hey, I have this idea for a mechanism try to do this. I don't know what the scoring system is, but here is what I'm stating your goal is. Now you can't publish a game being like, hey guys, I'm not going to give you a point system. Just try to do this thing. 
but for that early prototyping, that's really all you need. Yeah, one thing I really like to do is verbalize it. As soon as I get like the slightest inkling of an idea, I just like to talk it through. Often I'll talk it through with my wife and uh, she doesn't really play games that much but even just having to say it out loud helps me. And then often I'll give a call to one of my game design buddies and I'll just say, all right, here's the idea. Does this make sense? And then they'll just say, well, how does this work? Well, what does this do? And then that will help me sort of get a more concrete idea. But you're right, very quickly after you get that initial feedback of what is this about and you start to form it in your mind, you need to get it on the table because it's very hard to actually understand what's going to look like before it actually hits the yeah. table yeah we, we can uh we can mentally design for years but until the moment someone's moving something around you don't have a game one thing that i found myself doing too i work with a designer developer and rulebook editor called jeff fraser great guy we've got a few co-designs together and one of the jellybean games meow i remember i was meant to be working on something else but i had this idea in my head it was the old game Mao. i was like could you make like a packaged version game of Mao? Mao, if you don't know, is, is a kind of classic card game. You play it with a deck of cards and the idea is that one person knows the rules and no one else at the table does, which is just such an intriguing idea to me. I've always enjoyed this idea that like one person, it's a little bit like a horror game idea. One person knows the rules, no one else does. And so you sit down and start to play, but it's really hard to publish a game where it's like, hey, you don't know the rules. I had the exact same idea for a game. The idea was basically, a, <laughs> tell me if, I, if I'm misunderstanding what you're saying, but the idea was a social deduction game where you're trying to deduce basically, is this a real game? Like, are, are these rules real? Or is the person sort of messing with me? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> no, it's not quite. The same. Oh, okay. okay. So I'll give you an example. In, in the classic game now, everyone's dealt a hand of cards and it's a shedding game, which means that you win by shedding your hand of cards. If you play your last card, you win. And the dealer or whoever started the game will know the rules. And every time you break a rule, they will call you out. So on your turn, you'll just put a card down on the stack. And so every time you do it wrong, he'll say, nope, draw a card. So every time you get it wrong, you have to draw a card. And you'll pretty quickly learn that it's a little bit like Uno, where you're allowed to put eights on eights, you're allowed to put reds on reds. But as well as that, there's all these kind of meta rules around it. So you might say, am I allowed to do this? And the rule guy will say, nope, draw a card. Because asking questions is conventionally against the rules of Mao. Often people will play with this thing where the winner gets to add a rule. So the rule might be every time you play a five, you have to tap your nose three times. Or maybe that's a rule that the game started with. And if you don't know that, you're just going to be playing fives until eventually you work it out. So I've always thought this was a really interesting idea that I have no interest in playing. <laughs> it's a fun concept, but do I want to sit down and have someone tell me I'm wrong with no information? No, that's not interesting to me. So Meow, which we actually end up making, and you can pick up now at www.jellybin.games, the unofficial sponsor of this podcast. The idea is that you pick it up, you learn the base rules, but every single card in the game has a rule and you win by working out what all the rules are that everyone's holding. And so now it's a complete game. But at the time I was just like, man, Mao is interesting. Could this become a game? So I just messaged Jeff and I was like, look, this has been in my head for three days. Just need your honest opinion. Could this go somewhere or is this nothing? And that was it. I just kind of typed up a very rough version of the rules and he was like, no, I think this could go somewhere. I was like, okay, cool. So I'll work on it. And so I definitely see a lot of value in bouncing ideas off other people, but nothing is as valuable as just getting it to the table. So what if you're working on a game and as it develops, the mechanics stray further and further from the original theme. What do you do in that sort of a situation? So I'll tell you what I see people do and it drives me mad, is that they will just add more mechanics to make it thematic. And they'll be like, okay, so in this game, you are a duck on a boat with a hat and a 
pet cow. Then you end up playing this really grindy Euro and you're like, I don't feel like a duck on a boat with a hat and a pet cow. And they're like, oh, but look at these four cards. When they're combined, they become the cow card. And just like, this is this bizarre mesh of theme and mechanics. So I'll tell you what I do, which is that I will jettison the theme. I try not to do that because as well as being a mechanics first designer, like I mentioned earlier, I'm often a product designer because I know that I'm going to publish most of the stuff I make if it's good enough. So I will generally come up with an idea with a full box image in mind and a product. So I try not to jettison the theme, but there have been many instances now where really the theme that I have does not match the mechanics. The mechanics are a fun experience. So I will throw out that theme and often crowdsource a theme. I'll be like, hey guys, play this game. Right now it's themed as this, but what could it be themed as? And I'll tell you, every time I've done that, eventually someone's been like this theme and everyone at the table has been like, yes, that's exactly what this game should be. If you really want to make the original theme, cool, make that as a separate game, but don't try to force theme and mechanics together because you just won't end up with a cohesive product. So you briefly mentioned a product first designer as opposed to mechanics or theme first designer. There's another one called Experience First Designer. Do you want to go into the difference between these four? Yeah, so I think Jeff Engelstein is best known for popularizing Experience First Design. And that is a little bit like what you're saying with the horror idea, where you're like, I want people to feel like this while playing the game. Yeah, 100%. So it's a very effective way of designing because you end up with a theme and mechanics that both mesh with the experience that you're trying to create. And so I think you'll find there's been quite a lot of very successful Experience First Designs I wish I could be an experience first designer. Uh, it sounds like a really great way to design. I'm incapable of it. A lot of people will be theme first and that's where you're like, man, I really love ducks on boats. More than anything, I want to make a duck on a boat game. I don't know why a duck would be on a boat now that I <laughs> actually explore my ridiculous example slightly further. So they'll be like, this is the theme that I want to make. What mechanics would fit this? This can be quite effective because again, you end up with this nice cohesive product. I am the... I would probably argue the most common kind of designer, which is mechanics first, which is I'll be playing a game or I'll be listening to a board game design podcast or I'll be doing something and I'll be like, man, this would be nifty. Where you're just like, oh man, this this one mechanism, if I could get that to work, that would create this really interesting experience and then I'll build out the whole game from there. Ironically, sometimes the original mechanic that I came up with doesn't end up in the final game in the slightest. I have a game called Robots, which is actually an example of a game where I crowdsourced a theme and Sarah Perry, who's a game designer and also works with me at Jellybean Games, was like, robots! And I was like, yes, robots! I think it was Sarah, it was someone. <laughs> and I was like, yes, of course this has to be robots. But that was a game where the original mechanism was that it was a card drafting game where you hand cards around a table and then the cards that you play in front of you, like in Sushi Go, the one that you keep, becomes a worker placement spot just for you this round. If you play the final game, none of that is in there. <laughs> there's no drafting, there's no individual worker placement spots, none of that is in it at all. But that was very much a mechanism first design that then lost the mechanism and then changed themes. So it had the most elaborate start. Like I said, the, the other way that I tend to design is product first, where I'll be like, okay, I'm, I've got an audience now who like these $20 family games. And so Mao, which became Meow, was sort of product first because I was like, I know what the hook is. I know that I can do it with just cards. I know the experience that I want to have. I even had an idea of the player count. And then I kind of designed that idea. And so it didn't really have an experience. I guess the experience of some people know some rules and some people don't. But that one kind of came together as a very cohesive product. I started with the name Meow, which is what it ended up being called, which is a reference to Mao. And also I ended up theming the whole game to cats. The other two ways I can think of designing are, I think it's Eric Lang who calls it Moment first designs where he's uh, like yeah. it's very closely related to experience 
I want this moment to happen, like this cinematic moment where this thing happens and you'll go home and you'll tell your friends about it and you'll never forget it. And we've all had that in games where we're like, man, I did this one thing, one turn, nothing else in the game mattered, but that moment was incredible. So Eric Lang particularly tends to come up with those moments and then design an entire game around them. And those moments can be thematic. They can be, you know, I, I slew a god with a rock or they can be mechanical where it's like, and in that single turn, I cleared off half the board because I did this clever combo. But moment first design is I think a really interesting way of designing. And then if you're talking about kind of the more professional, like they do this literally as a job, developers, especially in-house developers, I suspect that there's quite a lot in that context of price point design where the company will be like, hey, we need a $40 game out by the end of the year. And they'll be like, yep, I'll sit down and design a $40 game for you. The moment first design is something I'd specifically like to address with my background. I cannot tell you how many times someone will walk over to a game and say, oh man, come check out this game. And they look and they're like, what's it about? And they're like, uh, it's got like, uh, you're Vikings and you're like killing people and stuff. <laughs> but, but let me tell you about this one time when this guy summoned this giant Hydra and then the Hydra blew up everything that I had when I was just <laughs> about to take this spot. You know, they, they have trouble articulating exactly what the game is, but their enthusiasm and their memory of that one moment is key for the game to be sold to their friends. Cause ultimately, Word of mouth is the best way to sell your game. If you are listening to this because you want to be a published designer, and I should draw a very clear distinction, you can design for fun, you can design as your hobby, you can design because you want to, you just enjoy the process, you can design to play games with your friends, that's all totally fine. Because I'm a publisher, I tend to focus much more on the designing for publication. If you want to design for publication, thinking about your game as a product first or moment first is invaluable. Like it is such an effective way of making a game that will turn into a good pitch. Whereas honestly, mechanic first design, unless it's a groundbreakingly astonishing mechanic, unless you can then package the rest of it together, that's gonna to be a much, much harder pitch. The other type of design inspiration that I can think of is hook first or component first. And these again are very closely related. I know that Jamie Stegmeier of Stonemaier Games, he, when he's looking at a pitch, he's like, it's got to have a must-have component. That is a requirement for every single Stonemaier game. And that's not to say that you have to build that in as a designer. Although again, if you really want to get published, make it as easy as possible for people to sign you. So Wingspan, very good game, very well made, great on, on pretty much every level. But the component in that is the little eggs. People see those eggs and they're like, oh, I want to play that game. I want to play with those eggs. That sounds fun. Zulkin is a great example of a, I suspect, a component first design. It's a game with these three interlocking gears. And after every single turn, you rotate a gear and that rotates the other gears. And this has a huge mechanical effect on the entire board. So these are both component first designs. And then hook first is very similar. There's a designer called Julio. He's in the North Carolina group. And he is, he is hands down the single best hook first designer I've ever seen. You will never see one of his prototypes that you don't see from across the room and go, oh, I want to play that. That seems interesting. He has this DNA game where the central board is a DNA helix and you're taking sticks out and putting them in. He has games where you are a dragon marching around and, and not literally setting things on fire. But I wouldn't be surprised if he came out with a game soon where you literally set things on fire. Like <laughs> he is a man who's driven by hook and that hook is almost always component based. There's two things I want to say in relation to hooked-based design. If you want to see it in action, just think to yourself, when you're walking through a con, what are the games that you stop at, look over and say, whoa, what are you playing, right? What are the prototypes that you see at cons that get all the crowds of people coming over to them? Those are the ones that have a really good hook in one way or another. And the other thing I wanted to say was that if you want to test your hook, 
just go to a game store go to your friends just say hey here's the one sentence elevator pitch are you interested in that game or if it's a component hook just set up on a table and just hang it yeah. by yourself <laughs> see who comes by to ask you about it you know when i have colossus out my goodness everyone comes over to take a look at that and they don't even care what you're doing in the game. They're just like, that looks awesome. I, I have no idea what you're up to, but I want it. <laughs> a great example of a game that has a great physical hook that isn't a component hook is Happy Salmon. Mm. In the game Happy Salmon, you're all basically pretending to be salmon and people will stop and watch you. <laughs> now, there's no central component where it's like, oh, that, it's the what people are physically doing. There's a pair of designers whose names I unfortunately can't remember. Great designers, though. And they pitched me a game, which I was so interested in, where you have to set up four chairs in a row, all facing the same way, all in a line, and every player on a team sits on one of those chairs and you have to physically pass cards back above your head. And the idea is that it's, it's a luge, I think is the word, the, the cool running sport. So you are playing as a luge team on these chairs and you're just trying to process these cards as quickly as possible and hand them back. And if you can get the whole deck to the back of the thing, then you win. That's it. And you can set up two teams against each other or you can play it cooperatively, all these things. And they pitched it to me and I'll halfway through the pitch, I was like, let's just play it. My goodness, the crowd of people we got being like, why are these people setting up these chairs? What are they doing? Oh my God, they're doing it all in real time. <laughs> Incredible. Now that game was literally a deck of cards. So I'm not saying in order to make a good physical hook, you have to have a $80 component. But if you can think of a different way to use the space, people often refer to the toyetic quality of games these days. And that is what they mean. Like it looks like a toy. So one of Julio's games coming out from Pandasaurus is called Control, C-T-R-L. It's very toyetic. It's a bunch of those multiplication cubes, I think they're called. We don't really have them in Australia. And it's a 3D area control game where you hand around the area that you're controlling. It's really interesting. It's very toyetic. And that's a great physical hook, but it doesn't need to be toyetic to have a great physical hook. Uh, we should probably define hook because we've been using it a lot. Do you want to explain what a hook is? Absolutely. So a hook is the thing that you say that gets people interested in your game initially. It can be really any aspect of the game, like we were discussing, but it has to be the thing that when I say it, you are then hooked metaphorically on what I'm going to say next. If I deliver the hook and you still aren't interested in my game, I have really failed and it, it probably isn't a good hook. <laughs> so if I told you, right. you know, cash and guns, yeah, you're bank robbers and it's bluffing and you're trying to figure out who's shooting who and uh, you get the most money and you win. You're like, oh, maybe okay. some people will be like, oh man, a bank robbery game. That's enough for me. Great. You've got some people, but it's not a super strong general broad hook. Exactly. Whereas when you see eight people sitting down and they each pull out one of these foam pistols from the box that it comes with <laughs> and everybody's aiming each other and your grandma's holding the gun sideways and like, back off, pookie, like that. That is amazing. Everyone wants to play that game. But like you were saying, it doesn't even have to be a physical component. There's a game that I've been just falling absolutely in love with recently called Inhuman Conditions, which is the most interesting social deduction game I've ever played. So, Peter, you tell me if this sounds interesting. This is a two-player, five-minute social deduction game where one person is interviewing the other and they can ask anything that they want to. The other person is role-playing. They are possibly human, in which case they're just role-playing, just answering the questions according to a fake character, or they're a robot, like in Blade Runner, and they've got a restriction on how they're allowed to speak. 
the interviewer is trying to pick up on little idiosyncrasies <laughs> that they have no idea what it could even be. It could be anything. And the robot's trying to come across organically. That immediately hooks me. As soon as you were like, and you've got a randomly drawn set of restrictions. For, for me, I'm like, ooh, I could see myself playing that game and having fun with it. And that's really what you want a hook to be. And hooks can be, like I said, they can be component. You can be like, that looks fun to touch with my hands. I wish to touch that with my hands now. They can be thematic. I would say Stuffed Fables is a fabulous example of a thematic hook. You've got a button shield. You're playing as a stuffed animal trying to protect a little girl from nightmares. Right. Or it could be mechanical. And mechanical hooks, like I said, are kind of the hardest ones because you need to have a game knowledge. But it could be, I mean, I mean, the one you described is essentially mechanical. But it could be, just off the top of my head, a worker placement game where the worker spots are floating around the room. I'm like, what? Well, how does that work? I want to play that. That sounds interesting. So you, you can have a mechanical hook. Again, to talk about why new designers, I think, struggle with this. Firstly, it's hard. It's so hard. I'm four and a half years in and I'm still like, oh, that's the hook of this game. I wish I had mentioned that at any point. <laughs> Coming up with the hook is hard. Identifying the hook is also hard. But one of the reasons I think new designers struggle with it is because quite often for them, the hook is, oh, it's an Eric Lang game. Yeah. <laughs> and Eric Lang, don't get me wrong, he definitely works on his hooks. He's not being lazy at all. But he does get the bonus of being very famous and having a great back catalogue, a ludology of dozens of hit games. So you hear new, in the same way as you hear new Quentin Tarantino movie, you're like, well, obviously I'll go see that. You hear new Eric Lang game, you're like, well, I will play that. And people are like, oh, well, the hook is just, it's a really good game. No, that's not a hook. <laughs> well, to be honest, there are games that do transcend this. There are games that are just so overwhelmingly good that in spite of having many things going against them, they succeed. But I don't even want to mention one of those because like, I think that's just teaching bad habits. We should be doing well on absolutely all fronts. Being a good game is expected having a good hook is what gets your foot in the door. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I kind of want to press you on that a bit because I suspect, unless unless you go back too far, because you can be like, well, Monopoly is one of the best-selling games of all time. What's that hook? And you're like, well, no, being first was the hook. Like, <laughs> being the first of its kind is an amazing hook. There's a TV Tropes page called Seinfeld is Unfunny where people are like, man, I've heard so much about this sitcom Seinfeld. They sit down, they're like, oh, everything this show does I've seen before. Yeah, because Seinfeld invented it and then other people copied it. That doesn't mean that Seinfeld is unfunny. It's just that it was so groundbreaking that everyone started copying it. So I am curious if you can think of a game that you would describe as not having a hook but being a hit anyway. That is from, say, the last five years, because anything before that, and we're talking a whole different world of board games. I might want to jump back to this afterwards so I can have a minute to think, because I don't yeah, think of necessarily... Of no, that. AJ, I'm putting you on the spot right now. You have to answer to these very <laughs> specific conditions I'll come up with or else you're off the podcast. That's the rules. Well, it is a great question. And I'll admit like the way I said it may have sounded like I had something that I was specifically hiding. Uh, but I do know that <laughs> I, I put on a uh, talk at Board Game Bliss a while ago, why your good game won't sell. And it specifically went into a lot of the things that we're talking about here. Oh, that was such a good talk. Oh, thank you. I watched that talk and I was like, I didn't know AJ knew this much. <laughs> like, I, I didn't know you very well at that point. I was like, oh yeah, he's a lovely guy. But then I watched that and I was like, holy crap, I was taking notes and being like, this is incredible. Definitely watch it. We'll link it in the show notes. Awesome. Awesome. I'm really glad to hear that you actually uh, got some. Not you. Don't you watch it, AJ. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually watched that about five times. I'd love to, <laughs> at some point, do just a quick addendum to it because some things I think in the industry have changed a little bit and that might change some of the things that I said in there. But for, for the vast majority of it, I think it's universally applicable and, and good advice, obviously, or I wouldn't have said it. <laughs> One thing I want to talk a little bit about, in addition to hooks, something that I don't really have a great term for, but it's like, 
crowd gathering. We talked about this a little bit when we were talking about physical component hooks. You know, you see people holding the guns in caching guns and you're like, whoa, I'm interested and you walk over. Same thing happens at a game of Captain Sonar, right? Right. So this concept is really about if this game is being played, how do you get some free marketing and get people to walk over to the table? An example that I'd like to talk about that isn't component is also in, in human conditions is there's the possibility that you're a violent robot, in which case you've got many objectives. You have to insult the interviewer <laughs> three times or something. And the interviewer, if they're suspicious at all, they can just cancel the game. And, and if they're <laughs> right that you were a robot, you're toast. But if you complete an objective and you wait a couple of seconds... Then you slam your hands on the table and you scream, you're dead. <laughs> and let me tell you, that might be a little startling to other people, but it gets their attention. And when they see you guys laughing and calming down after a game, they walk over and they say, whoa, what were you guys up to? <laughs> so I'll tell you what you're looking for is a phrase that's a little bit inaccurate is table presence. You're saying what gives this game good table presence? Like I said, it's a little inaccurate because it doesn't have to involve a table like the luge game. But generally speaking, when people are walking by, what makes them look at this game and come see it? Now, in our very specific situation right now of everyone in lockdown, this is a little bit less relevant. But once the world starts to open up again, and definitely, you know, in the past five years when we've had our experience, table presence is a key factor that publishers especially are looking for when they sign a game. It's not necessary. It's not required. But again, do everything you can to help yourself out. If you can come up with a way of giving your game great table presence, why would you not do that? Some that spring to mind are Tower of Madness by Smirk and Dagger, which has a big tower that you drop stuff into, and it's got a very good physical component. I'm trying to think if there's any Stonemaier game particularly, because he's kind of well known for his art, so... Scythe. Scythe has the best art, for sure. Scythe does have the best art, but it's not super grabby, because it's so kind of dark and murky. But the, the mechs in Scythe, you walk past and you're like, oh man, what are all these little meeples and mechs? And they're all hanging out on a thing. What is this? The game that is about to close on Kickstarter called French Toast has this in a really interesting way in that I won't go into the full rule set, but basically you'll find yourself repeating words a lot. So you'll walk past a table of people where one person is saying trolley, 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 trolley. And there's something about that that you're like, what, what, what is happening here? Why is this person saying trolley over and over again? So there's different ways that you can have that. I think table presence is the appropriate word for what you're describing. And they can be component. They can be behavioral. They can be audible. There was a very, very <laughs> bad game called Rocket Cats. Did not work as a game. Failed on Kickstarter, I think, two or three times. Was not particularly good. But the guy who ran it turned out to be a, a total not nice person. But he had an eye for this kind of table presence, which I always found really fascinating. Whenever I'm seated at a con, I'd always kind of glance at what he was working on. Because even though his games were bad and he was a morally reprehensible person and he got essentially kicked out of the industry, his games had table presence. They consistently did. And this one, even though mechanically it didn't, or anything like that there was a rule where at the end of the, it was a real-time game and at the end of the round you had to count down and so you had the entire table saying five rocket cats four rocket cats three rocket cats two rocket cats one rocket cat time and the trouble with the games that went on for two hours so the people next to them would be made of it like so sick of hearing people count down these rocket cat things but for the first two it's a very simple way of adding table presence that didn't require any components didn't require any rules didn't require people to run around the room but it worked for the game in, in as much as anything could work for that incredibly bad game. <laughs> now, I've got a... Uh, uh, this might be a mean question to ask. Are there any games that have a good hook that you think would have failed if they didn't have that hook? Like a, a component or something that is the reason why that game is popular. And if it didn't have that thing specifically, 
Nobody would give it the time of day. So I'm going to answer this very directly because I haven't played the game. There was a game that came out, I think, two, three years back called Everdell. Now, I've never played this. <laughs> I cannot speak to its quality in the slightest. But my understanding from the murmurings of the board game is that it has this 3D tree. It's just made out of cardboard or a punch board and you put it together and it's this 3D tree. Great table presence. Many of my friends who have played it have been like, yeah, I got sucked in by that tree and then played a very average game. Mm -hmm. I'm not critiquing the game, I haven't played it, but this is, this is my understanding. So that would be, I think, a very clear-cut example of a game where the hook is what sold the game. Absolutely. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that because, to be honest, like, not everyone is as picky as us and our circles, right? Just because the people that you've been talking to say... It's an average game with a great hook that I don't really want to play again. That's not necessarily saying that the game shouldn't exist or anything. There's plenty of people that aren't super into the board game sphere, don't have super specific tastes, aren't looking for something that does something really punchy and new. They're just people who've come from board games, uh, maybe play a bit more casually. They love the aesthetic appeal. Right. And it's a competent game. They just enjoy it for what it is, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can probably just by Googling find a bunch of games where people are like, yep, grabbed me by the art and then I did not enjoy the game. Or just as commonly, the pitch, the one sentence pitch was amazing. So I went and played the game and it turned out to be garbage. But that pitch got me in. And so there are definitely examples where the hook and the quality of the game quote-unquote quality don't match up mm -hmm. now one thing that we've been talking about a little bit is when the design changes from what it was originally supposed to be and you have to save some of those ideas for later so i have a question for you when that happens how do you save your idea for later so i have a workflowy workflowy.com is just a list making website i find it really useful i think in lists so i use workflowy.com and i just have a node in my workflowy which is board game design ideas and it's sorted into like just a basic mechanic, a theme, a title, all that kind of stuff. And so if I'm ever, like you said, if I've got writer's block, I can just open that up and be like, let's read through this list. So I really recommend recording your ideas. A lot of people use the notes function in their phone. Some people use the voice memos function. Just write down every idea you have, honestly, no matter how bad. Like don't duck out halfway through your wedding to write down a bad idea. But whenever you are able to write them down because they will disappear. And sometimes reading through them later, you'll find them and be like, oh, I don't like that idea at all, but it's inspired this other idea. Or at the time I thought that was bad, but now I think I know how to make that work. I literally just store them in Workflowy, but whatever system works for you, just keep them around. Don't ever throw out an idea. So I asked that question specifically because I wanted you to mention Workflowy, which I started using <laughs> as a result of your recommendation. And my goodness, it has changed my life. Honestly, I it is a game changer. <laughs> literally. <laughs> I always use the Notes app on my phone. And it is so inconvenient comparatively how I used to do it to just, you know, tap a node, type in the name of whatever you're thinking of. It's so easy and it's so organized. I think you said it, it to me best when you said like, it's very simple. It does one thing and it does it perfectly. <laughs> it actually is exactly the elegance thing we were talking about earlier where they're like, here's our central idea. Let's just do that and nothing else. And you can find workflow competitors that have numbered lists and they have hyperlinked lists and all this kind of stuff. If you want more functionality, you can absolutely do that. On the front page, they're like, import from Workflowy because they obviously use Workflow and we're like, I wish it had this. And just like an early game designer, we're like, well, let's make it so it does. I stick with Workflowy because, as you said, it's just very, very elegant. I actually found Workflowy. I was on a website that was like 100 productivity tools, and the third one was Workflowy. I clicked through, and within literally two to five minutes, I had a paid account. I paid 100 bucks for a year because I was like, not only will I use this, I will use it so much that I will need a paid account. 
my entire life is going on Workflowy. That was six years ago and I've never looked back. <laughs> so you've got an idea, you set it aside, time passes, you come back to it. How do you approach that old idea and try to think of what has changed and how to use that idea now years later? Do you have any tips for how to come back to an old idea that didn't work before? Yeah, so for me personally, a lot of the time when I put an idea on this list and don't execute it, it's either because I just don't think it's quite good enough, but it might be useful later, or it's because I know I'm not a good enough designer to execute this idea. So I have a game that I've, I've been working on forever, and I've actually pulled this to the table multiple times, and every time I pull it to the table, I'm like, you know what, I'm not a good enough designer to make this game. So I put it back on the shelf, and I come back a few years later, and I pull it out, and I play it, and I'm like, okay, I'm definitely a, like a better designer I can see the mistakes I'm making but I'm still not quite there so one thing might just be that you've improved as a game designer now if you're a brand new game designer that's probably not going to apply to you another thing is that you might have in the intervening time and this is very closely linked I suppose encountered something that makes it work obviously as game designers we should be playing games play as many games as you can go to conventions don't go and do what I do and just play test the whole time but play published games I try to have at least you know, a couple of days a month where I just play published games and no prototypes, not so much now with lockdown, but on my iPad right now, I have probably more than a hundred different board games downloaded because that's how I get my board game intake. Play games because you will see other people doing stuff that you would never have thought of. And often those ideas, you can go back and apply them to your old game. So I have a game on the shelf right now. It's called Alien Poker. I think you've played various prototypes of this over time. And the idea is that it's an alien planet. It's a game of poker. Everyone's sitting down to play. However, one or two players are humans. They don't know the rules of alien poker. This is a recurring theme in this podcast where some people don't know the rules. It's a concept I'm really fascinated by. And so they are bluffing. So they're playing a game of poker where they don't know the suits or the ranks or anything like that. Whereas everyone else does know the suits and ranks and they're trying to spot the humans. So they have a little rules card that says, hey, for this particular game, here's the rules. And the human doesn't have that. So they're trying to bluff and win tricks and all this kind of stuff. And it's on the shelf right now because I spent about six, eight months developing it. And at the end I was like, look, I don't know how to make this game right now. I've put it back on the shelf. I'm gonna try and play a bunch of trick-taking games. I'm gonna try and play a bunch of bluffing games in case there's something in one of those that I see. And I'm like, aha, applying that twist or that idea or that mechanism to Alien Poker will make it work and I'll have a, a game that actually works. So if you're working on an idea and it's something that's very, very innovative, how do you know when it's just pushing the boundaries too far that audiences might not be able to accept or understand the product that you're making? That's an interesting question. The formula I've heard, which I really liked, was half innovative, half familiar. So if you're making a game where the average game player just has nothing to hook onto, you're going to have a bad time. They need something that it reminds them of or something familiar because otherwise they're just going to be going in and playing a thing that's completely confusing to them. So that would be a case of something being perhaps too innovative. Whereas... If you can tie it to a mechanism that they're familiar with, then it gives them something to grasp onto. I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, Dominion was a big hit, obviously. <laughs> mm. And that was that's widely considered the first deck builder game. There's some others that you could argue have the title, but Dominion was definitely the first big hit deck builder game. I think that was successful because people were familiar with Magic the Gathering deck building, where you, you know, pull your cards out and you make it. And there's a big overlap between MTG players and Dominion players because it's kind of like a draft. It's kind of like building a deck like you do in, in Magic, but it's its own game. I think if Dominion, exactly the same rule set, had been released in 1981, it would have just confused everyone. No one would have anything to grasp on. It would have been an example of being too innovative. Whereas nowadays, it's too stale. So like it obviously hit at the exact right moment. You know, if you try to release Dominion today, people will be like, why do I need this? I already have Dominion. <laughs> 
and then Ascension is a good example. Ascension built off Dominion, so it used a lot of the familiar and then added some new stuff. So it's, it's about that balance. I wish there was a simple formula, but just try to think who is going to like this game? What kind of player? So Dominion, Magic the Gathering players liked it. Ascension, Dominion players liked it. Who is going to like this game? And if the answer is, well, it's so new that everyone will love it, you might have an issue. I think uh, another offshoot of that is Mystic Veil. When AG was working on the Mystic Veil, they were they actually started with a different game, uh, Edge of Darkness. That was the first one, first card crafting game. But then I think that they probably came to the same conclusion that you're sort of talking about, which is it was too much because that had card crafting and then your cards that you were building could be bought by their players and then they became monsters and like it had all this stuff going on. But introducing the world to it in a very simple package like Mystic Veil that seemed to be very much the way to go for a new bold concept. It's funny you mention that because Dominion, originally the deck building side of it was what you did to play the main game. <laughs> so exactly the same thing. He was like, cool, there's a mechanism that you do the other thing. And then eventually was like, oh, I don't need the other thing. This is the game. This has happened to be on multiple occasions. Robots, the game I mentioned earlier, the entirety of Robots was originally the mechanism by which you played the second game. And I did, like I said, that classic thing of just being like, oh, I need to cut this in half. I need to strip it down to this thing. And that's the interesting part. Mm. The thing to remember is that people hate learning rules to begin with people don't like learning rules. absolutely so if you need them to learn a set of rules in order to understand the second set of rules you probably have too many and that's why if you were to introduce feast for odin to someone who's never played a game before they're gonna have a really bad time because you're not only teaching them the specific rules for feast for odin you're also teaching them how an engine builder works how a polyomino game works how a worker placement game works these are all concepts that we as gamers understand but people who are new don't so again, it's about thinking who your target audience is. Is it a gamer? In which case, sure, you can kind of lean a little bit to the heavy side. But a lot of prototypes I play, I'm told, yeah, this is for the casual audience. And I sit down and play, I'm like, it's not. It's, it's not for the casual audience. You've just internalized all these rules so you don't think of them as rules. People won't understand that. There's a game designer called Emma Larkins, a friend of mine. She's got this brilliant little game called Abandon All Artichokes. And it was actually picked up by GameRite, who did Sushi Go and Forbidden Island and Forbidden Desert and all that, because she was like, I want to make a deck builder for people who have never played deck builders in the same way as Sushi Go is a drafting game for people who have never played drafting games. And during the process of making that game, I happen to know, she had to cut out so much stuff because people just, like, she had to end up cutting out card costs and turn sequence and all this stuff that she was like, well, this is the simplest deck builder you can make. And no, she had to strip it back and back and back and back and back. That's fascinating. One thing I was thinking of when you were talking is actually the exact opposite. So what you were talking about is stripping things down so that they could be really easily understood even by people that don't have our preconceived notions of what a worker placement is, for instance. But what you can do, if you're designed for a more experienced audience, you can scaffold onto what they already know. Absolutely. If you play a first-person shooter from 2000, it's like this weird alien thing that you have no idea how it works. <laughs> Whereas if you play it uh, today, then W is forward, left click is shoot. Like these are conventions that you don't have to teach your players necessarily, or you can teach them and move on very quickly, knowing that everybody who has ever played a first person shooter follows those things. If you were making a first person shooter and you had to click the middle mouse button to shoot, or you used, you know, UHJK, for movement that would throw people off you want to use these things to your advantage <laughs> not work against what your audience already expects right absolutely one thing you can do actually is if you are targeting a more casual audience 
rather than be like, I'm a gamer, so I know all this stuff, think about what a casual audience does know. Mm. I firmly maintain that one of the reasons Settlers Catan was the big hit that it was is that at the start of your turn, you roll two dice. At the start of every turn in Anokli, you roll two dice. At the start of every turn of Trouble, you roll two dice. People get that. Scaffolding is a really good word. You're scaffolding off their pre-existing knowledge. And in this case, I think Settlers Catan worked because people were like, oh yeah, you roll two dice at the start of your turn. Oh, but you do something different with them. That, it's not how much you move, it's a different thing. So that's a great example of hooking into what people already know, but using it in a really different way. The rise of roll and rights in even the casual audience is because everyone has played Yahtzee. Everyone has played a game of Yahtzee in their time. And so you can be like, okay, you know Yahtzee, you'll get this. I think that's a really good point. And to go along with it, what you can do is you can scaffold onto non-game related things as well, right? So there was a fabulous example of this in Plants vs. Zombies. The designer was making a very casual tower defense game. And he needed new people who had never played a tower defense game to know that the towers wouldn't move. So how does he convey that? What sort of theme does he use? <laughs> he uses plants. They are literally rooted to the ground. Why can't I move this archer is a great question if he was using archers, but he wasn't. He was using a plant that you have stuck in the ground that you can no longer move. And what does he need for really large, slow-moving hordes of things? Zombies. Everybody knows about plants. Everybody knows about zombies. Wrapping the game around that theme helped scaffold their understanding of how to play with the mechanics. And so this is one of the reasons that I feel is not really explored a whole amount. Why the theme of your mechanics is so important. It might make sense to you that, you know, the archer can't move. A simple heuristic that I use is that if people are naturally doing a move, that should be the rule. If people are constantly being like, well, I feel like I should be doing this, and you have to step in and be like, oh, actually, no, you can't do that. Cool. Throw out your conception of what it should be. Look at what people are actually doing. Make that the rule. 100%. And if they're not able to form those heuristics, you need to change something. I was playing Black Angel, and that game is a nightmare for heuristics. I played that with three other experienced board gamers who have all played thousands of games. Well, maybe not thousands, but hundreds at the least of different games who have played really heavy, complex games. And we were just baffled at what it looked like because <laughs> in a traditional Euro, you might harvest wood and then turn the wood into planks and then use those planks to build a house. Okay, I can understand the rhythm of this game. In Black Angel, it's like you're drafting dice, which you don't want the good ones because then someone can steal them from you and then you're using the dice to, to for all these different actions. What if I colonize this planet? That sounds good. Well, it's kind of good, but other people actually get as much of an advantage off of it as you do. There's all these weird things. Yeah. And if it had a theme that made sense, then people would be able to develop heuristics much more quickly, be able to get to the fun part of your game more quickly. So another question I have, what's an indication that your design is a great idea versus a red flag that the idea just can't work fundamentally? As I said earlier, because I'm a publisher, I like to design a product. If I'm having trouble getting people to be interested in playing the game, that's a huge red flag. I'm one of those people now whose standards have raised to the point where if I mention a game idea and people aren't like, ooh, I want to play that, that for me is a red flag. Now, not everyone has to be as picky as that, especially when you're starting out, just make some games, get your 10,000 hours in. But Alien Poker for me is something that I, like I said, I put six to eight months into working on because every time I mentioned that, people were like, oh, interesting, I want to play that. And I was like, okay, cool. That for me is a green flag in a sense. I know that that's a good idea. If it's not exciting people after the first few playthroughs, that for me is a pretty big red flag. 
we all love our own ideas. We all love our own ideas more than anyone else will ever love them. So me being excited about it is not really enough. <laughs> I need to get it in front of people. I need to get the MVP and play it with people. About two years ago, I designed a game that was called Seven Spells or Seven Coins or something like that. And it had some really interesting ideas in it to me, but I played that with three different groups. And at the end of it, all of them were like, yeah, I think this could be something someday, which is nice. Very nice of them. People are going to be polite. People are going to be kinder than is necessarily helpful. But after none of them was anyone like, oh, I want to play that again. That was really interesting. I've never seen something like this. They were all like, that is a perfectly competent combination of mechanics <laughs> that I think if you kept on working on that, you might have something. And I was like, I'd rather spend that same amount of time working on something that I know it could be a big hit or could be great. One sort of perverse thing that I've noticed, when people give really passionate negative feedback to me, that's actually something that I, I'm like, oh, really? Because <laughs> it means they cared, uh, one. And your game isn't going to make everybody happy. And if someone plays your game and they go, you know what, I didn't really like it, but I really wanted to. I thought this idea was really cool. And then the guy was like, no, you're crazy. That was such garbage. And why did you do this? And this whole thing is stupid to me. Like, I listen to every word and I don't want to say it's not valuable. But when people get that passionate with the negative feedback, I listen more closely than anything else. Interesting. Yeah, as a producer, I want to make people happy. Like, it's actually a big weakness in my design. Quite often I'll be... God, so far through the development process and someone will have to be like, Peter, you got to stop giving all the players infinite resources. you got to add some scarcity to this. you got to stop being quite so nice. But I'm like, no, I want everyone to have fun all the time. So I'll just give them everything. Obviously, that's not fun. So I, I've never thought about stuff like that, but that's definitely interesting. I have encountered people. Um, Dracula's Feast is one of our games. We used to market as a social deduction game. We stopped doing that. Now I call it a logical deduction game. And for a while, our kind of tagline was, it's social deduction for people who don't like social deduction. And I think as a result of that, a lot of players went in not unreasonably expecting social deduction and getting something that is very much not social deduction. And so that caused a lot of anger. But I wasn't like, oh yeah, people are angry. This means it's good. I was just like, okay, I need to work better at marketing it. That is a huge deal. I was uh, talking to Jonathan Gilmore about a game I was working on. And before we played, he was like, so what's it about? And I said, you know, this is a storytelling game about, you know, laughing and getting to know your friends better, blah, blah, blah. And then we played it and he was like, okay, you know, it's a, it's a good design, but I had completely the wrong expectations going into it because while the entire game is telling stories and figuring out if they're true or lies, the point of the game, the, the utility players get from coming to that game isn't that they get to tell stories. It's not designed in the same way as traditional storytelling games. It was designed more as an icebreaker, a thing to get to know each other better, social lubricant. Right. And that's how I should have pitched the game to him. Yeah, I recently abandoned another design. This is the graveyard of Peter's ideas, which is called Agricultists. Agricultists was a very dry mechanics first game. It's a little rondelle game. It's got such a clever central mechanism. I've never been able to get the rest of the game to work to begin with, but particularly I ended up going with this theme that was quite funny. <laughs> People were like, what a funny theme, and they'd sit down and play an incredibly dry Euro. One of the reasons I came up with that theme was that I was like, man, this game's so dry, I've got to do something to get people in. Don't add a really wet theme to a really dry game because then people come in expecting haha laughs light gameplay and they get this incredibly heavy euro yeah not being a product that pleased no one so that one's on the back burner for a very similar reason this is something i bring up in the talk that i referenced earlier why your good game won't sell the point that you made about nobody liked your game 
is really important. <laughs> Sorry to, to harp on that. <laughs> people didn't like the game for two reasons, right? Reason one is that people thought your game was one thing and it wasn't, didn't like it because they were expecting the one thing. But also the people who would have liked your game never probably tried it because they thought it was something else, right? Right. I've seen this a lot in products where, you know, you use cartoony graphics and a cute theme and then have a really like dry Euro auction game. And you're like, why? <laughs> what kid is excited about this? No, they're, the kids are going to look at it and want to play it. The adults aren't going to buy it in the first place to know that it's a good game for them. <laughs> One of my favorite worker placement games is Harvest by Trey Chambers. Just a lovely little worker placement game that has a magic theme. It's not a magic game. It's just a worker placement farming game. But they gave it a magic theme for no real reason. And... You end up being like, why are these magic pumpkins? They grow by planting seeds in the ground and then eventually you get a pumpkin. And that's not magic. That's just how a normal pumpkin works. <laughs> why are they magical, mystical radishes when they grow exactly like a normal radish? Yeah, there's definitely merit to like coming up with a juicy theme for your game. You just have to make sure it's a juicy theme that fits with the mechanics. As an example of like a quote unquote, you know, dry euro with a great theme to it. I think of something like Selenia or Ticket to Ride, you know? Those are games where normally it would just be like, yeah, I'm drawing cards, I'm moving things, I'm picking up resources. But because of the color and the theme and the feel of it, you get a lot more mileage out of that. But you have to be very careful with these types of things. Right. I want to go back to what we were talking about, the different types of starting points. I'd like you to sort of point towards the merits of the different ways you can begin a design. If you start with mechanics first, what's the advantage of that, etc.? So a mechanics first will often give you a complete system in that, you know, it won't necessarily gift it to you. You still have to work. But if you start with mechanics, you can be like, okay, I want people to do this. This is the thing that I want people to do. And that will lead to them getting this and that will lead to this. And eventually you'll have, you know, a start, middle, end that are all mechanical. The downside of Mechanics First is that it can be really hard to find a theme that matches it. And often, not always, but often when you finally find a great theme, it's not the most marketable theme. So to use my robots game as an example, you place these workers on the board as a worker placement game. Once you place them, they're not yours anymore. And about once around, they all get swept up and turned into cubes. And for a long time, this was kind of broadly themed as an immigration game where <laughs> You put the workers in different regions and then they integrate into society and that gives you cubes because of integrating. <laughs> it was a garbage theme. And so, like I said, someone suggested robots and I was like, oh, you're literally crushing the robots into cubes. That's delightful. And people don't feel sad about the robots dying because they're robots. You know, they're not meant to be particularly cared about. The trouble is that robots is not a super marketable theme. Like it's not a complete deal breaker, but it's not a theme where you're like, oh, a game with robots in it. Yes, I'm immediately in. So mechanics can give you often a very high quality game experience, but leave you to really be playing catch up on the product side of things, especially theming. And for a theme. So theme first is often the exact opposite. Generally, if you want to work on a theme, it's because it's something that you're excited about. And that would often mean that other people will be excited about. I have a weird example of one of my games coming out with Pandasaurus. It's a time travel game. And time travel is interesting because it was both the theme and the mechanics, but Let's pretend I had no mechanics whatsoever when I came up with it. And I was like, I want to make a time travel game. Cool. Immediately, there's an audience for that. People are like, oh, a time travel game. I want to play a time travel game. Incentives are aligned. Let me purchase your game. But again, to use the very specific example of time travel, it can be incredibly hard. So I wanted to make a time travel game. Cool. What does that look like mechanically? Maybe I have no starting point and I'm just trying stuff out. Or it might be a theme that, uh, what's, what's something that's really big right now in media? Marvel movies. <laughs> 
Tiger King. <laughs> Let's say you are super into Tiger King and you're like, I want to make the Tiger King board game. Now, as a fan of Tiger King, I'll tell you, I want to play that game. But how the heck are you going to get functioning, fun, interesting mechanical rules that tie into Tiger King? You know, that's a whole challenge. Like, cool, you've got the hook pretty much built in, which is great. And it'll often give you a really clear guiding light because every decision you make mechanically, you should be thinking, okay, well, the primary thing about this game is the theme. Does it feel Tiger Kingy to have a dexterity element? Does it feel like it's a Tiger King game to have dice rolling? Does it feel like Tiger King to have hidden identities and traders? Immediately, just from knowing Tiger King, I'm like, oh, yes, that one makes sense. Yes, that makes sense. Oh, this could do that. So it can definitely be a source of inspiration and more importantly, a guiding directive with your design. But it can be incredibly challenging to come up with a fun mechanism that matches the theme. For IP games, just phone it in and make a deck builder. (laughs) Easy. I would play the Tiger King deck builder. (laughs) (laughs) Deck builders are like the action adventure games from like the PS2 era or what shooters are today. It's just like... Yeah, you got an IP, just slap it on a deck builder and you're done. (laughs) All right, so when you're starting with hook first, merits and disadvantages. So very similar to theme first in that the hook gives you a selling point. And the best thing about a hook first game is that you don't need to design a single thing. (laughs) I guess Alien Poker in a sense was a hook first game because I had that single sentence, you're playing a game of poker, but some people don't know the rules. And it's basically, I described it as Gamer Spyfall. It's Spyfall where one person doesn't know the rules and everyone else does. They're trying to find the person, they're trying to guess the rules, but actual game rules. And that as a hook grabbed a lot of people. A lot of people were like, oh, my family loves Spyfall. I would love to introduce Alien Poker to them. Or I love poker, I'd love to play an even more bluffing version of poker. It just had enough ins that it was a really effective hook. The big thing on a hook first design is delivering on that hook. It's incredibly difficult. And so as we mentioned earlier, there are a lot of games where the hook is great and the game just doesn't live up to them. You're providing yourself with a real challenge to be like, great, you've got a good hook. Like I said, a worker placement game where the worker spaces float around the room. I want to play that. Okay, now design it. You can't. Like, it's much easier to come up with a hook than it is to implement a hook. There's nothing worse than sitting down to play a game, being so excited about the hook, and having it just suck. <laughs> there was uh, one time, I this was, I think, at Second Year Proto-TO, which is a local board game design prototype convention held in Toronto, which you should definitely check out. That's where Peter and I met, and uh, it's the highlight of my year every year. But I went there. There was one sort of section off to the side where they had, like, covered up the windows, and it was, like, dark. I was like, what is that? And they were playing by lantern light. The lantern light that was projected was the board. I was like, this is the coolest <laughs> thing I've ever heard of in my life. That's a great hook. I went over and it's a rolling move. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. So that was hook first. Now, what if you designed product first? What does that look like? So product first, one of the big struggles with product first, it relies on a lot of industry knowledge. Because you can be like, I would pay $40 for a six-hour game that comes with 25 campaign books and has this experience. And like, cool, but that's not going to be makeable for $40. Like, to really design product, you've got to know price point, demographic, what else is in the market, and how much it's going to cost. Product first is something that, if you can do it, great. And again, if, if like AJ, you work at a store, you spend a lot of time buying games and playing games, you can start to get a rough idea of what stuff costs. But the difference between a... $40 game and a $60 game 
in terms of how well it'll sell is huge and in terms of how many components you can put into it is, is equally massive and so you kind of need to know a lot of that stuff going in to really effectively design a product yeah i think that product first correct me if i'm wrong here but it seems like product first design is typically a publisher approaching a specific designer and asking them to fill a specific need for them it can be that i know that there's a canadian designer sen fung lim who a lot of his designs uh, either con- not contest exactly but like open bids where he's like I would like to design this let me submit an idea or genuinely publishers coming to him being like hey you can deliver really consistently good product make us a game for this IP at this price point but I think that as a designer with no links to publishers whatsoever if you are thinking about product right from the start that can definitely be a helpful way to think it's just can be quite challenging because you'll be like great I want this 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 and then you'll get to the end of the process and someone will be like yeah but custom dice cost you know they add three dollars each to the price point of your box you can't have 50 of them in a 50 dollar game it just doesn't make sense those are not real numbers don't go away thinking (laughs) those are exactly the exact right numbers so what does component first design look like so one of the again big benefits of component first design is that you generally can get a publisher interested pretty easily everyone especially nowadays wants a great component hook wants that toyetic quality Similar to Hook First, it can really suffer if it doesn't deliver on it. Someone pitched me a game once where the central mechanism was a cat tower. And I was like, what a fun idea. A cat tower in the middle of a game. I know people are into cats. I could make a fun cat tower game. I know how to make that a punch board. And then they submitted the rules to me. And the cat tower was literally just end game scoring. You moved up the cat tower to show how many points you had. It was not used anywhere else in the game. Completely underutilized Hook. The specific issues with component first design are A, you need to be able to prototype it. And often, if you want to send it out to publishers, you've got to prototype it multiple times. So that can be a lot of knowledge required outside of your normal game design knowledge. And then secondly, you might have no idea if it's actually possible. Like, I can build something in my backyard that could never be put into a publishable game because how is it going to be constructed in the end game product? So if you happen to have knowledge in this area, great. Definitely utilize whatever talents you have. If not, be prepared for people to be like, well, this is a fun game and this component works really well. I don't know how to make it. How are we meant to do this? Yeah, I remember um, I was talking to Sen Fung Lim, designer of Junkart, which is hands down the best dexterity game I've ever played. Definitely check it out if you haven't played before. It's spectacular. But I was talking to him specifically about this problem. How did you like prototype this game? And he said, well, I know a bit about woodworking and I've got all these different tools and I've got a Dremel here and this here and I just made it. Like, that's great. But if you had an idea for a dexterity <laughs> game and you couldn't do those things, you'd have a really, really tough time with it, right? Yeah. With game design, like any creative pursuit, you really want to play to your strengths. And this is another thing that I've been so slow to learn. I have been a writer for my entire life. I've always written. I love to write. And only this year, 2020, did I be like, oh, maybe I should make a game that actually uses my writing talent in some way. I just never thought to link those two before. So if you know that you have strengths, definitely use them. Like utilize those strengths however you can. If you're good at woodwork, cool, try a hand of dexterity game. If you have a deep knowledge of diving, maybe make a diving game and bring your expertise to it. Like there's definitely ways that you can utilize your pre-existing talents in Mm -hmm. game design. And sometimes you just have to get really creative. You know, um, I'm working on a card crafting game myself. And one of the things that I started doing initially, I was like, okay, how do I make transparencies with things printed on it? And then I was like, wait, I can just use a dry erase marker on card sleeves and it does the exact same thing. (laughs) And obviously, you know, it's more fun to, to do it the other way. But when I'm just prototyping, I don't want to be wasting hours and hours and hundreds of dollars on these things. So what about when you're working on moment first design? So this is one of the biggest struggles in game design generally. 
which is how do you get your players to do the fun part? And we might even do a whole episode about this at some point, but it is, oh, it's, it's ridiculously difficult. So let's say you were like, I want the pivotal moment of this game to be when someone is like, oh, I can use the winged boots to fly over the bank and steal the gold and land in the pit and immediately spend the gold to upgrade the pit to a jacuzzi. You're like, this is going to be the moment that people remember for the rest of their lives. And so you build a game where it's like, entirely possible to do that and you get to the end of the design process and you stand with people and they're like oh cool i'm just gonna go straight to the pit with this gold that i got through this other mechanic and just do that and you're like but you could you could do you could do the cool thing <laughs> wouldn't it be cooler if you did this and they're like yeah but it, it would take five more action points and i can get the same results this other way and so you're like okay well I'll make it so that they can't do this and you end up putting all these rules in to be like well you can't do it this way so in Dungeons and Dragons or role playing generally, it's called railroading, where you railroad your players to do certain things because you're like, this is the cool thing that I've planned for you. It's terrible game design. And you'll see a lot of game designers have these extraneous rules of like, well, you can only do this and this way and only do this in this way. And often it's because they're either trying to force this one experience or because doing it outside of these rules completely breaks the game. But the end result is someone having to remember a list of 45 rules exceptions. Whereas in order for it to work, you really need to be good at player incentive, which is the core of all game design. Like I said, we'll talk about it more later. But you need to make it that not only can you do the cool thing, players want to do the cool thing, not just because it's cool, because it's the best way to get what they want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the core of every action a player takes needs to be because it's the fun thing but they won't take it unless it's the best yeah. thing. Lining up fun and efficient or fun and victory point gaining is... Oh, it's one of the tricks of game design. And as a cynical designer, I hate it when it's too obvious. Uh, the <laughs> latest Stone My game, Tapestry, came out. I remember reading the rules and being so turned off because in that game, you can pull out these hexes and place them on the map. Like the explore action is, is put a hex down on the map. And you get a victory point for every edge of the hex that matches up. So if you match mountain to mountain, river to river, ocean to ocean, desert to desert, you get a point for each of those. And I remember seeing that and being like, this, oh, it's such a transparent way of saying, hey, players, I, as the designer, want you to make a nice map. So I'm just going to give you victory points if you do it the way that I want to do it. it. For me, that was a really clear case of railroading. People weren't incentivized. Naturally, they're incentivized in a very didactic way and it's interesting because it's in that particular case that you mentioned there's really no incentive to ever put it in any other place other than i guess racing towards the center at the very beginning of the game other than that because they incentivize it so heavily and there's not a significant benefit to doing it any other way right it almost may as well just be the rule that that's where it goes you know it's so heavy-handed um <laughs> jamie stegmeyer who I think is a genius in many ways. He definitely suffers from the same thing as me, where he just wants his players to have everything all the time, but to such an insane degree that it drives me mad. <laughs> now, from moment design is sort of a offshoot of experience-first design, as you alluded to earlier. Can you go more into the advantages and disadvantages of experience-first design? Yeah, experience-first design is actually probably the one I know the least about because I've never managed to design in that way. For me, the hardest part is that it's really hard. I don't know how to do it. But specifically, the advantage of experience design is that you end up with an experience, which sounds very obvious. But at the end of it, you're like, okay, if you sit down and play this game, you will have this particular type of fun. And that can be great for attracting an audience. Smoke and Dagger is a game company who I think really have a 
very clear experience in all of their games where it's kind of treachery and not trusting people in a very light-hearted fun way smirk and dagger is a very good name for that all of their games are i would suspect experience first designs so the advantage is if you like one of their games you know that you're going to like the rest because they all provide that same experience the disadvantage is similar to the moment thing where it can be hard to incentivize that experience so the advantage is definitely that if you can create that, then you will establish a brand. The disadvantage, I think, is just that it's incredibly hard. So one thing that I've been digging into a lot the past little while is biochemistry, because I've been trying to find the bedrock of fun. And trust me, we are going to do an episode <laughs> on this. That, I think, is at the core of experience first design, in that you really have to understand what causes the particular behavior that you're looking for, right? If you want players to feel scared, you have to know what are the root causes of fear and what are the things that prevent you from feeling fear. And you have to make sure that the barriers aren't there and that the incentives are. So I'll give you an example from the horror game that I'm working on. Knowing what the horror is fundamentally removes fear. Fear comes from powerlessness and knowledge empowers you. So what do I do? I have one person playing as the monster. They know the rules. The other players don't know the rules to the scenario. They know the, the basic rules of, of moving around and taking different actions, but they don't even know what they're up against or what's going on. And they have to figure that out over the course of play. That's one example of what I'm working on experience first design, what I'm looking to do. I think it's a very effective way of making a solid experience, which, you know, all games are ultimately experiences. I'm just not great at it, honestly. <laughs> so when you're designing from top down, from theme first... How do you immerse yourself in the subject matter? So one example of a theme-first game I've been working on is called Neverland. That one was very easy. I just absorbed every bit of Peter Pan media I could. So I watched the Disney film, I watched the Disney sequel, I watched the live action, I watched the other live action. I even found like the first ever Peter Pan film on YouTube, like the 1927 silent Peter Pan film. I watched a BBC parody of Peter Pan. I watched a two-parter that BBC did. I just watched all the Peter Pan that I could. Because immersing myself in it, immersing is a really good word, immersing myself in it meant that it was always at the top of my mind, I was always thinking about it, and that really helped me translate different elements into the game. And you could even argue that IP first is different to theme first in the same way as moment first and experience first, I think, are distinct. Theme first can just be like, I want you to be factory workers, that's the theme. There's definitely overlap between them, they're very closely related. But with IP first design, you need to work out what the audience specifically wants. If you ever made a Peter Pan game where Captain Hook didn't exist, you've done something wrong. <laughs> sure, it's got Peter Pan in it, and Wendy, and Tinkerbell, but if there's no Captain Hook, it's not going to feel like a Peter Pan game. Whereas you could make a factory game that didn't have a boss, or that did have a boss, and they would both feel like factory games. I've got a terrific example of that, actually. So I was listening to a GDC talk from uh, Disney Imagineers, who are the people who design the theme park attractions at Disneyland. GDC, for people who don't know, is the Game Developers Conference? Correct. Traditionally, they focus on video games, but they also branch into virtually every area of design to some degree or another. And a lot of their talks are available on YouTube. They're really interesting to watch. Absolutely fabulous. Yeah, I forget what this one's called, but if I can find it, I'll put in the show notes. But they were talking about how the first Imagineers, way back when, ran into some problems when they were trying to translate the experiences from film into attractions. And one of the interesting things that they said was they had, I think this was their first attraction, if not, it was very early on. And they were doing like a Snow White one, because obviously Snow White is the first full-length animated film. It's a big, important property. And you would like walk through basically the scenes of the movie. But 
Crucially, Snow White wasn't there. Because in their minds, you're playing as Snow White. But there was nothing <laughs> to reinforce that. You know, if you're playing a board game and you're playing as Snow White, okay, here's your Snow White card and here's your powers and stuff, right? If you're playing a video game, you get to see her controlled on screen. When they just are, you know, they don't get to feel that. And so they realize that what they need to do for this type of experience is have a specific role that is very well defined and still have the things that they want. In their Guardians of the Galaxy, it makes it very clear up front, you are not the Guardians, you are mercenaries or something, you're hired bounty hunters that they've brought on to help them escape from the situation. And so the context is defined and you still get to see all the things you expect to see in the Guardians of the Galaxy experience. For sure. There's a really good thread by Kevin Wilson, the board game designer, about making IP because he's worked on some of the most famous IP board games of all time. I'll try to find that and link it in the show notes too because he talks about what they look at what people expect, and then what stuff you can throw in for the hardcore fans that people don't expect it, but it's going to be a nice little treat for them. Yeah, it's a really interesting topic. Now, when you have a theme and you're trying to translate that into mechanics, what are the first steps you take to try and find what mechanics match the theme? So I've designed a few theme-first games, and this is the time when I really do think about the experience. I think, okay, if I was, say, a factory worker, what would that feel like? What's drawn me to that theme? what interesting parts of that do I want to convey into the board game and then what mechanics would best fix that so because I think my strength is in mechanics I try to get from theme to mechanics as quickly as possible and then set up a system and then develop the content to match the theme but the important thing is that the core loop of the game which we'll talk about another time what a core loop is the core loop needs to reflect that experience so in my Neverland game for example Peter Pan is all about adventuring all over the island. If you had a Peter Pan game where you were trapped in a room for the entire time, I don't think that would really feel like the essence of Peter Pan. He can fly. There's such a diverse cast of characters. You want to experience that. You want to move around. You want to do exciting things. So I made sure that the core of the game mechanically allowed you to do all that. The other thing I would really think about very early on is what is the goal? So again, in a factory game, your goal is presumably output or impressing your boss or whatever it is, but think about what a goal would be for those people and then look at your core loop and be like, okay, how can I make sure that this core loop drives me towards that goal? And I think once you've got that, once you've got what they're going to be doing each turn and what they're building towards, if those are thematically very, very resonant with the experience that you're trying to make based on that theme, then I think you're going to have a much easier time than if you're like, I really want to make a Neverland game. You're trying to get the most money and you do it by building a deck. You're like, well, who is deck building in, in Peter Pan? Like, who is ever building up their skills? It's not about that at all. It's about adventures. And maybe, you know, maybe there's a little bit of deck building aspect to it, but that's not the core of Peter Pan. It's about working out what the core of your property is and then making sure that your goal and your mechanics really line up with that. There was a uh, common thing that Wizards of the Coast would ask people who are pitching games to them. Who am I? What am I doing? Why do I care? You'll notice that none of those things are mechanical because they are looking for the context to be able to appreciate the game. But if when you tell someone about your game, they don't have any grasp of the context, they're going to have a really hard time enjoying your mechanics, even if you have a mechanical hook. Absolutely. So you said you're normally a mechanics first, theme second. What does that look like? How do you try and match a theme to the mechanics that you're working on? You mentioned before that you crowdsource it sometimes, but what about when you aren't doing that, when you're just thinking it through yourself? Because I've always got product in mind, when I have an interesting mechanic, I'll use Bugs and Rugs as an example. Bugs and Rugs is a drafting game. It's not like Sushi Go where you're drafting around the table. You're drafting from the middle of the table, more like networks or, or similar games. It's called a Rochester draft. 
And so it's a Rochester draft game where everyone drafts cards from the middle and the remaining card has a global effect. That was the mechanic that I started with. I was like, I think there's something really interesting there. Everyone is drawing from a common pool and the last person has the fewest options because they only have a few cards to draw from. But the one that they don't pick is just as important a decision. And everyone before them has the ability to basically block that decision by drafting that card. There was just something about that that I thought was really intriguing. But before I, I wrote a single card, before I worked on any mechanics beyond that basic idea, I thought, okay, I've got to have a theme that makes sense. So I actually came up with, with two and ended up just picking one because I was like, this makes more sense for Jellybean games. It ended up being published through Kids Table Board Games, but they have a very similar brand to us where it's about these light, family-friendly games. So I thought, okay, so you're picking stuff from a set. What would make you pick stuff? Well, not only that, but the stuff that you pick, whatever's left over has an effect. So for me, that has to be active in some way. So I wanted it to be living. I've already spoiled where I landed by telling you the title of the game, but I thought, you know what? People collect bugs and bugs are living creatures. You know, maybe there's all these bugs and the last one buzzes around the room and affects everyone. So that's how I ended up with that. So I look at what the mechanic is, what makes sense with it. And it's really important for me for my games to resonate in terms of the theme and the mechanics line up. And so I really want to make sure right from the get-go, okay, this mechanic and this theme, they do combine. And so before I even wrote a single card, before I even came up with a single effect, I was like, okay, what would make sense with this core mechanism? So when is it correct to compromise theme for the sake of mechanics or vice versa? The broader question is, what are you trying to do? Again, consistently throughout this podcast, I'm going to focus on publication because that's, that's where my interest lies. If your goal is just, I really like poker i just love poker the music style i only want to make a game that dedicates itself to poker cool it doesn't really matter what your mechanics are it only really matters what your mechanics are in terms of how well do they reflect poker so they can be as elaborate and weird and crazy as you like but if you're trying to make a publishable game you got to say okay who is this for if it's for the gamer crowd if you're trying to do a game that will be in the bg top 100 for example ideally you want everything to mesh as closely as possible but in that case you can probably sacrifice a little bit of theme and lean to the mechanics Azul, I think, is one of the best designed games of all time. The theme of that is that you're tiling, I guess, for some reason. Like, there is very, very little theme to that game. It works. It's a fine pastiche to put on top of an amazing set of mechanics, but it doesn't really matter that much. Whereas if you were trying to make a game, uh, you know, if you're trying to make the Rick and Morty card game, you can't just be like, well, the theme doesn't really matter. No, that's what's drawing people in. So work out what you're trying to do and focus towards that. The issue I have is when people hold on to the theme at the expense of mechanics. The worst thing you can tell me in a playtest when I'm like, why is this rule here is, oh, because that's how it actually works. I don't care at all how it actually works. I care about how the game that I'm playing right now works. And the game that I'm playing right now is not more fun for knowing that the Pope only lived for four years. So every four years you have to throw out your Pope card or whatever. It's just an arbitrary rule to me because I don't care about the history of it. If you're making a game for history nuts, sure, go full Virgin Queen and make this <laughs> elaborate set of subset of rules that all intertwine in really complex, weird ways. But generally speaking, you want to make the best experience that you can. And unless the theme is the main selling point, I would focus on mechanics. I think that's uh, definitely wise. The one thing I'll say, though, is you need to make sure that it's sellable. Going back to my background, right? I've had so many people say, oh, I've heard Azul's really good. Can you tell me about it? I'm like, honestly, I'm really good at making games sound sexy. And I have nothing sexy to say about Azul. Like oh, Azul, I think, is incredible. Azul, my pitch would be... It is a themeless game, so nothing wrong with that. There's no crime. I, I was saying earlier that if you're going for gamers, you want to go mechanics. If you're going for the mass market, that would imply that you want to go for theme. But look at some of the most successful games. Uno, again, this is kind of too old to really be a valid use right now. 
Uno has literally no theme. <laughs> as long as you embrace the themelessness, that's fine. So with Azul, I would never try to sell it based on theme. Maybe this is a good example of, of what we are talking about earlier, where it doesn't really have a hook. <laughs> no, that's not true. The hook of, of Azul is the clicky-clacky yes. pieces. The clicky-clacky <laughs> pieces are so much fun. So I would say it's a game with an incredibly simple rule set really fun clicky clacky pieces where it is deceptively mean and by that i mean you wouldn't look at it and think this is a mean game but it is one of the most cutthroat games you will ever play in your life surrounded with these nice little clicky clacky pieces in a themeless game 100 <laughs> percent, couldn't agree more so as you play test and your design has to evolve and you find the core engagement of the game how do you stay focused on the original vision so this is a tricky one i don't Frankly, I follow the, as per my earlier, I just want to make people happy. If people are enjoying a part of a game, I'm like, cool, maybe that's what the game is now. Sometimes I'll have edicts or, or rules that I set. So again, to use robots as an example, I wanted to make a mid to heavyweight Euro with no victory points. That was a very firm goal right from the start. There were, there's no victory points in robots whatsoever. I guess you could say, it, but Peter, you have to get this stuff on the board. Those are victory points. Sure, by that definition, chess is there's one victory point that's killing the king. But in terms of how we normally use the term victory points, there's no victory points in robots. That was something really important to me to do. And so I held on to that. But everything else about the game really kind of changed and molded over time as people enjoy different things. And then to use the other extreme, some people will write up a design document. They'll be like, I want to make a 45 minute game for two to five players that has this, 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 and this. That is what they are trying to make and they will hold on to that. And some very good games have been created from that. It's not to say that one way is right. It depends on what you want to make. If you want to make just a good game and you're not married to any particular aspect, cool. Just follow the whims of the playtest. If one playtest, everyone, well, you know, not after every single playtest throughout the game. I know people who do that, it drives me mad. After a week of playtesting and five different games, people are like, look, I really like this one element. Consider blowing that up into the whole game. Whereas if you are like, I really want to make a game that explores the life of Richard Nixon from birth until he was eight, that's all I want to make, then write down what you want to make and stick to that plan. It really depends on what your goal is. So that was our main show. But at the end of each episode, what we're going to do is we're going to have a teaser, a small question from next week's episode, and we're going to have a fun personal question that we ask to get to know each other better and to reveal more of ourselves to you. Oh, fun. So our teaser from next episode, which is, by the way, uh, Common Mistakes New Designers Make. My teaser question for you, Peter, is what is the number one mistake that new designers make while pitching a game? Am I answering this now or is this is the, is the yeah. answer? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. The number one mistake I see in a game being pitched, which might not be the exact answer, is that the game just doesn't have anything special. Yes. And it's your baby, you love it, so you're like, this is the best game that I could make. And I'm like, I don't care that it's the best game that you could make. It's not the best game that I've seen. I'm not comparing this game against your other games. I'm comparing this game against every other game on the market. It's got to be that. But it, specifically in pitching, this game's for everyone. So Jellybean Games has a very specific goal with all of our games they are fun for adults i could play a game with you aj and we'd have a good time they're fun for kids you could give this to a pair of 10 year olds and they could have a good time without us being there but more importantly most importantly it's fun for an adult and a kid to both play the same game without either side getting bored it's not snakes and ladders where the adults like there's literally no agency in this game it's not twilight imperium where the kid is like what how, how does any of this work it's a game that challenges and stimulates both halves of an adult kid pair playing the game. People hear this and they're like, oh, so I'll make a game that's fun for everyone. A five-year-old could play it and a hundred-year-old could play it. And 
that's not really a selling point. I hear that and I'm like, mm, don't, don't, don't want a game that everyone will love because quite often if everyone will love it, no one will love it. Yeah, I think the, the adage is uh, if everyone likes your game, nobody will love it. Yeah. And similarly, actually, is when people are like, and it's got a thousand variants, so no matter what kind of gamer you are, you can find a, a fun game in there somewhere. They don't phrase it like that, but as soon as I hear it's cooperative or competitive or it's team-based or it's this, I'm like, so what you're saying is you're going to give people a box of components and say, I've hidden a fun game in there somewhere, see if you can find it, work out what the best way to play your game is and give me that. Exactly. <laughs> well said. So, on to the fun question that is completely off topic. Peter, I would like to know what your favorite and least favorite sounds are. My least favorite sound is sand rubbing against sand. Mm. I just, yeah, that sound when you step on sand, it all rubs against each other. It's up there with two marbles rubbing against each other. I'm shuddering just thinking about this. What about chalk on a chalkboard? Chalk doesn't bother me. Really? For some reason. And cutlery on a plate or silverware on a plate, not a huge issue, but sand and marbles, those are the, those are the two that really get me. Hmm. I'm a parent, so I feel obliged to be like, my favorite sound is my son's <laughs> laughter. <laughs> what a cop out. <laughs> well, you, you, get, you gave me a gimme. I had to go with it. Uh, what about you? What are your favorite and least favorite sounds? My least favorite sound is the sound of a mosquito or another insect flying, buzzing right beside my ear. Specifically mosquitoes, but <laughs> anything just drives me mad. And my favorite sound, this is going to be a bit weird. You know the little ding you get from apps? <laughs> like notifications? Yeah, like I find that not every one of them, but many, many apps are designed to just have the most delightful little ding or jingle. <laughs> and it just, every time like, ah, yeah, that. <laughs> Your study into biochemistry should tell you that is very deliberate. <laughs> oh, yes. When you said this is going to sound weird, I was worried you're going to be like, it's the sound of an Australian accent. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more, it's weird that I thought of it because I think a lot of people, it's subconscious. I don't know how many people are like, oh yeah, I like the sound of that. So genuinely, I would have put that right at the top of my least favorite sounds. Really? When I was in my early 20s, I read Tim Ferriss's four hour work week and he suggests turning off all notifications. And so since then, I've never had a notification on anything. Nothing ever dings at me. Nothing ever chimes at me. And when I'm around someone who has those dings and chimes, it, it's, it's so grating. <laughs> I'll be talking to someone and it'll be like, ding. And I'm like, oh, I had you. And I just completely lost you. You're gone. So it's funny. Yeah, that sound would be right at the top of my least favorite. It, it gives me the stresses. So that has been the first episode of Fun Problems. If you enjoyed that, uh, let us know. You can send us an email at the email address that will be in the show notes because we haven't made it yet <laughs> if you have any questions for us let us know we might do a follow-up at the start of the next episode and one thing i'd like to add is if you want to ask us a personal question send us the email for that as well and we'd be happy to consider adding it to the end of one of our episodes and ask each other one of those <laughs> aj is in charge of the emails so i can be caught off guard by it as is his want <laughs> i don't remember signing up for that but i'll do it <laughs> That's all for now. We will talk to you next time on Fun Problems, the problems of fun. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Fun Problems Pod or reach us via email at funproblemspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend. <laughs>